must be possible to create much more value if we start with a notion that there is no such thing as waste. This is Eric Osmundsen. He's the former CEO of the NG Group, the largest waste management company in Norway. And yes, you heard him correctly. The CEO of a waste management company wanted to eliminate the concept of waste. Everything is a resource that can be used over again. So that kind of ended up being the vision for the company, that we should turn not only the company around with that vision, but also try to, to change the whole sector. Eric was a longtime business and finance guy before he started as CEO of the NG Group. And this was his very first experience in the waste management industry. So why get into waste? Eric thought it was lagging behind some other industries, especially when it came to potential for sustainability. I sort of never thought that would happen, but I kind of felt so energized from really trying to, to make a difference. What I did over the first couple of months was I spent an enormous amount of time just you know, visiting all parts of the operations, visiting the customers, visiting the competitors. And that was actually a pretty, pretty bleak story. It wasn't long before Eric figured out that the NG Group and the entire sector in Norway needed to be cleaned up. We uncovered all types of issues, like we uncovered corruption, we uncovered gross theft, we uncovered illegal exports, we uncovered illegal storage, illegal handling of hazardous goods. Everything from sort of, you know, very gross violations to just ignorance, both in the company and the industry. People were not reluctant to talk about all types of infractions, even illegalities. Eric says people were bold in their honesty about their actions. At best, it was unethical. At worst, well, let's just say it was bad. It's not the, the things that are illegal that's dangerous because we can deal with that quite effectively. It's the industry culture and the underlying notion that this is the way it's always been done and everyone else does it. It's not possible to change it. It was certainly a bigger task than he'd anticipated. And as he stood looking at the proverbial mountain of waste, he had doubts about what he was attempting to take on. I signed up because, I, I mean, I really wanted to deal with a global waste problem. And I really thought that I could use this as a platform to, to really make a difference in the world. And there I was basically thinking, wow, is it actually possible to change this? Is the culture too pervasive? I, I remember I was really struggling with three questions. One, is this actually possible to change? And if the answer to that is yes, am I the right person to actually go about changing it? And the third was, even if I am the right person, is, is it worth it because of, of, of the personal strains? I decided basically yes on all, all these two questions. I'm Elise Hugh. And I'm Josh Klein. And this is Built for Change, a podcast from Accenture. I feel like recently we've turned a corner around the topic of sustainability. Yeah, it means a lot more to us. And when we say sustainability, we mean more than environmental stewardship, yeah. right? I mean, we're talking about ethical business operations. We're talking about lasting business models. Right, we're talking about business practices that honor the planet and human yeah. rights and improve living standards. Mm -hmm. And on top of all of that are also financially sustainable. Exactly. And we know that over this last decade, we've seen a lot of businesses that have said they want to be sustainable, right. but whose actions just don't match. Right. But these increased demands for sustainability are not going away. 
and it can be an opportunity. And that's what we're talking about in this episode. Today, we're talking to an Accenture expert about how to fully take advantage of the emerging markets in sustainability. And we're going to find out how two business leaders have fully embedded sustainability into the core of their organizations. Sustainability has moved from the margins to the mainstream over the last decade. This is Peter Lacey. He's the Global Sustainability Services Lead and Chief Responsibility Officer at Accenture. All those years ago, this was something that was seen as a nice-to-have, potentially a cost. What we now see is that it is really defining the economics of the business for many companies. Peter says back in 2016, just one year after the Paris Climate Agreement, world leaders gathered to develop a pathway to achieve the goals set out by the Paris Accord. It was drafted in collaboration with governments, business leaders, and investors alike. They're called the UN Sustainable Development Goals. 17 principal goals that span everything from poverty reduction and hunger good health and well-being, through to climate change, life below water in the oceans, life on land, forests and agriculture. They're an integrated, holistic roadmap for what we need to do across environmental, social and governance issues at a global level to ensure a prosperous and sustainable future. But Peter says the progress on those goals has been a disappointment. For example, researchers are now saying it will take 136 years to close the gender equality gap worldwide. That's 36 years longer than what was projected at the start of the pandemic. There's no doubt that progress against the Paris summit outcomes and agreement and the UN Sustainable Development Goals has been patchy at best and disappointing if we are really honest with ourselves. There are a lot of reasons why businesses have stalled. Maybe CEOs felt like their investors weren't totally supportive, or maybe customers weren't demanding the changes. Some leaders argued that systemic change would be too expensive, so instead they made small adjustments, and we now know that it wasn't enough. When we look at the incredible capital required, you realize that the public sector and the private sector need to mobilize capital and deploy it worldwide on a footing that's almost warlike. Peter says the problem isn't that business leaders are denying how important it is to operate a business sustainably. The problem is that there seems to be a misunderstanding of how much business potential this disruption can provide. But one thing we know is it is doable. It is achievable. Peter says momentum is building. New technologies like smart sensors, AI, and even improvements to solar power have made sustainable actions more affordable than ever. So just making things possible that were never possible before. COVID-19 raised the bar for business leaders. Many of them had to suddenly break from old practices to step up and serve their employees and customers. In a lot of cases, action was swift, and it proved that fundamental change was possible. But only 45% of CEOs feel that they're taking all the necessary actions to make their companies truly sustainable and truly competitive. What that implies is that the successful players, the winners, the most competitive companies over the next decade are going to need to embrace the new sustainability DNA. 
What does that mean? It means organizations need to be purpose-led. Peter says leaders can shape their organizations to be truly sustainable with what Accenture calls sustainability DNA. It works in a few ways. The first step is to consider all stakeholders in decision-making. Think employees, customers, communities, and shareholders alike. It's all about building human connections. The stakeholder-centric way of seeing the world, the ability to embrace, to put yourself in the mind or in the shoes of other stakeholders uh, and embracing what can be quite uncomfortable truths. Next, a company needs to ramp up their investment in data collection and analytics, which will help them monitor performance and make those stakeholder-centric choices Peter talks about. That means being able to blend digital and physical infrastructure to better understand the performance of assets, of buildings, of manufacturing sites, of fleet, of logistics. And this influx of data should inform practices and protocols, all to help people throughout the whole organization operate with a sort of collective intelligence. And also they need to drive responsibility across organizations, not just at the top, but a sense of accountability at all levels. It means having executive compensation that incentivizes meeting things like the Paris Summit outcomes or the Sustainability Development Goals. It means having commitments to labor standards and environmental stewardship throughout value chains and holding yourself accountable as well as others. And it means infusing it as something that is not a bolt-on or an add-on, but something that is just part of the lifeblood of the way that we think about setting strategy, leading organizations, delivering results, and creating value. So I feel like I've really started noticing the sustainability push touching my life in a bunch of new ways. Yeah. I mean, just a couple of years ago, we started eliminating single-use plastic from my home. And that's just a couple of years ago. Nice, nice. Not to one-up you, but I moved to a country that is using geothermal to power almost everything. Okay, so yeah, you have one up me. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> geothermal is one-upping yeah. me. But we also want so much more. Small steps, small fixes. They all seem a bit like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic sometimes when we really need big, meaningful action. Exactly. I mean, it's exciting to see marginal progress like this, but if we want bold results that benefit everybody, then the actions need to be bolder. And I think a lot of business leaders are still kind of daunted by the idea. Yeah. So next, we're going back to Norway to see what it looks like when a bold business leader dismantles an unsustainable organization and rebuilds it with sustainability DNA in its core. Remember this board meeting where I basically told the board that, look, I've been at the helm less than three months, and this is what I'm uncovering. Here's Eric Osmondson again. He's talking about a meeting he had with the board just after he'd discovered ignorance and compliance issues in the waste company's operations. It was an important meeting. It was the meeting where Eric would draw a line in the sand. If we continue to run this for another three months, then we are a part of it. If we decide now that at this board meeting that this is something that we will use all our resources, you know, come whatever, to change, then I will stay here and I will I will do that job. But I need, you know, that full-hearted support. And if I can't have that, then, you know, look, you got the wrong CEO. The chairman of the board looked at Eric and said, we're in. He said, we will tie ourselves to this mast with you in your endeavor to clean up the NG group. But we have two conditions. The first demand was that it has to be 100% transparency. 
that was a given for me, so that was no no issue. Uh, and the second demand was, you tell us, you had to figure out how to turn this into a competitive advantage. Eric agreed and set off on a 10-year journey to clean up NG and transform it into a sustainable organization. Eventually, this waste company would reject the concept of waste entirely. It would become an ethical and sustainable high-tech recycling firm. And it would become profitable by developing a circular economy for raw materials. First, Eric and the board enforced a strict new set of control measures that would define a code of conduct for the new NG group. No theft, no illegal dumping. You know, background checks, whistleblower channels, internal audits, and all type of of checks and balances to make sure that those controls are actually met. I told the board that this will help us maybe 10% on the way. We cannot change our company and the whole sector that we're, we're working in through a control system. We need to actually change the culture. And that's, that's not a one-year job, that's a 10-year job. For Eric to eradicate the old-school culture that had enabled things to get so out of hand, he needed the employees to believe that change, real change, was coming. So we decided, look, let's just be completely honest and let's grab every microphone that people want to give us and let's tell them the plain, dirty truth. Our narrative was that, look, yes, I know that's painful to hear, but we are the change people. We are the tidy up crew. And don't judge us by the skeletons that will fall out of our closet while we are tidying, because that is exactly what our aim is. So it's not sort of internal mumbo jumbo. You're actually putting your head on the block here. And by going public, Eric signaled to all NG's customers, the building sites, the demolishers, the shopping malls, that things would be changing. Next, Eric went to his employees with a lifeline. He said, for one month, come forward and be honest about whatever you've been doing, big or small. All will be forgiven. There will be complete amnesty. The main objective was to clean the slate so that, you know, after the amnesty, the people who still chose to be with the company had the opportunity to start fresh. But not everyone was excited to change their ways. What we saw over 18 first months, 44% of the top 70 leaders actually left the company. A lot of that was people who didn't believe in the vision. Eric's new compliance measures, along with the massive leadership turnover, turned out to be very expensive for the NG group. The first year and a half, we lost $150 million on the bottom line kroners just from the direct measures. We never even tried to sort of measure the effect of losing half your leaders. Think about what type of speed you lose, and especially when a lot of those leaders sort of join other companies and, and sort of take the customers with them with another philosophy. That was dramatic. And it wasn't just employees. Many competitors in Scandinavia's waste sector were also unhappy. Some laughed at him. You think you're going to do what? (laughs) Yeah, right. Others were, as Eric puts it, annoyed that his press tour brought attention to the sector's unethical and unsustainable practices. An industry association that NG was part of even chastised NG. They said, no more press or we'll expel you from the association. It gets worse. NG's new control measures meant that a few of the company's previous, quote, partners would be forced out of the business, and they weren't happy about it. I mean, if you talk about crime, normal crime and organized crime, we were very, very scared about that. And we we actually pulled out of several markets 
because we could not be certain that things were you know being done in the correct way we started to hit on some certain <laughs> uh, uh, organized family businesses and uh, and also some uh, organized biker organizations that um, that were quite scary i must i must admit but eric expected the first few years to be tumultuous he stayed the course he brought in new talent He worked to attract new investors who were supportive of the vision of a clean waste company. He brought in new customers who were willing to pay a premium for an ethical approach to the service. And in the end, he offset the losses. If you look at our financials, you don't see the dip. And then we had a record year in 2017. From there on, we started to grow. People thought it was risky to support us. It suddenly, over a year or two, turned very, very risky to not support us. Eric says when NG aired the industry's dirty laundry, the public pressure ultimately forced those non-compliant competitors to step in line and clean up their act, too. Next, Eric turned to what he calls stage two of the transformation. In stage two, we focused on what is it with sustainability that can actually be unique for us. So obviously, we'll run electrical-powered cars or trucks and all these things, but all our competitors can do that as well. That won't sort of separate us from the others. But where we can separate ourselves is through materials. Eric says that the raw materials industry emits 45% of the CO2 in the world through extraction and processing. So if NG could figure out a way to cost-effectively recycle materials they could make a lot of sustainability impact and a lot of money. Obviously, the NG Group had the pipeline for materials. They had tons of clients who paid them to get rid of their waste. So NG invested in new technologies, using AI, robotics, and sensors to modernize the recycling process. And all of these investments mean that NG can now sell these recycled materials at a price point that competes with raw materials producers. Let's create unique solutions, proprietary solutions, where we can both be more sustainable, but also be more profitable because we own those solutions. It's been nine years since Eric took over NG. When he started, it was a waste company riddled with shortcuts, questionable handling of goods, and sketchy partners. By 2018, NG had become a high-tech recycling business and one of the largest and most profitable waste companies in all of Scandinavia. I, I get approached by a lot of a lot of businesses that because there's a lot of pressure to become, you know, more sustainable. What, what should we do? And isn't, isn't that very risky to change so much? What I tell them is that, look... Uh, I, I think the opposite is very extremely risky. Because if you think you're going to compete in this world, you know, in five years from now, you know, maybe 10 years from now, with a product or a service that's unsustainable, you know, someone is going to eat your, your business for lunch. I, I'm a businessman. I believe that if it's not financially successful, it will not grow. Instead of, of struggling against this megatrend, how can we utilize this megatrend to become more competitive, to gain more ground? This guy is amazing. Like, it, where where did he get the courage to do all this? I love Eric. I was actually walking in the parking lot of a grocery store the other day. I was like, I think that was one of my favorite movies. <laughs> I mean, it really is bold, but it was not just 
run-of-the-mill bold. This guy really transformed not just his company, but the entire waste management industry in Norway. That's, I mean, that's that's the kind of leadership that we've been talking about here, right? Like that, that is true transformation. I know, he was really a fish out of water. I love how he just humbled himself, went in and was like, you know what? This is messed up and we're going to change it. Exactly. And he was able to prove in the end that there is a market for a sustainable waste business. Right. And next, we're going to talk more about sustainable markets, places where companies can take advantage of sustainability as a growth opportunity, like Eric did. And we're going to meet one innovative company that is solving a huge climate problem in a brand new market. Things are possible that have never been possible before. Here's Accenture's Peter Lacey again. And that creates both risk for the incumbents who can't change, but it creates enormous opportunity. And it creates that opportunity in forms of new markets for new products and new services, or retrofitting different ways of serving customers in more sustainable ways. Peter's research team is already seeing this play out in certain industries, from mobility to air travel, construction, fashion, and food systems. And even though these new markets are already taking shape, Peter says a lot of companies aren't prepared to participate, which leaves them vulnerable. I hope and believe that the next decade will show that if you're not a sustainable business, you may not even be here. But if you are, you're certainly not going to be a high performer by 2030. On the other hand, there are many companies who are preparing themselves for the disruption. They're looking at climate problems and creating new technologies and marketplaces to take part in the solutions like indigo agriculture. The current picture for American farms is generally pretty bleak. This is Dan Harburg. He leads the carbon quantification team at Indigo Agriculture. Farmers are are barely getting by or they're surviving almost entirely based on government subsidies. And so farmers are just hanging on to a large extent in the country. Our farmers are not profitable and are not sustainable. We're at a huge risk from a food security perspective and a health perspective as well. So I think it's really important that we have a healthy farm economy in the U.S., but the reality is that we don't. Indigo Agriculture is setting out to change that. Their goal is to improve the financial health of farms around the globe while simultaneously improving the health of the planet, all by creating a new marketplace for carbon credits. The key ingredient that makes all of this possible soil. Let me zoom out for a quick geology 101. When carbon dioxide is in the atmosphere, heating the world up, plants can actually pull it down and it can be converted into organic carbon in the ground. When the soil is healthy, that carbon will be cycled more deeply into the ground. But we've been degrading soil health for quite some time. Dan says that modern farming's best practices are actually really unhealthy for soil. Things like using chemical fertilizers, planting one crop in the same land year after year, or leaving the ground fallow between harvests. And then there's tilling, which is a big problem for soil. A till is that large machine that carves rows into a field. Its rolling metal rakes turn the soil to break it up, but it also destroys soil structure and releases carbon from the soil back into the atmosphere. And so that begins to turn our soil into dirt. And when carbon is eroded from the soil and the soil turns to dirt, it can't support plant life. So what happens is farmers use more and more synthetic fertilizers to get those nutrients for the plants that they're not getting from the soil, which comes with its own problems. 
And so what we're seeing is a, a pretty precipitous drop in soil carbon levels and a precipitous rise in chemical runoff from farms, which leads to all kinds of things like algae blooms in the Gulf of Mexico, massive destruction to the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, and all kinds of other natural disasters that are directly a consequence of the pollution that we're providing from the agricultural system. But it's not all bad news. There is a solution. And here's where indigo agriculture comes in. We started to realize that there were a bunch of other tools that farmers could use that they already had at their disposal to try to improve the sustainability of their farm practices and ultimately things that could repair soil health and ultimately sequester carbon. Indigo agriculture's solution is simple. Teach farmers to use regenerative farming practices that will improve the health of their soil, improve their crop yield and resiliency, and pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Which include things like reducing the amount of tillage, changing their fertilizer practices in such a way that it reduces nitrous oxide emissions, implementing grazing, adding cover crops to their rotation, and also increasing the diversity of cash crops in their rotation. And if the farmers implement all these practices, not only will their own crops benefit, but they'll have a new crop to sell. Sequestered carbon. And who's buying? Corporations. A carbon credit is ultimately a payment for an outcome. It's a payment for a ton of carbon dioxide taken out of the atmosphere and stored in the soil. And there are many companies for whom it's not possible for them to reduce their own footprints within their supply chains. And if they want to be carbon neutral as a company, they need to find some way to offset those remaining emissions. And the best way to do that kind of an offset is to pay someone somewhere else to pull one ton of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and store it. This is definitely one of the few places where you have a win-win-win, a win for the environment, a win for growers, and a win for business. So in order to facilitate this win-win-win market, Indigo needs to verifiably measure the product, how much carbon dioxide is actually being pulled out of the atmosphere. We need buyers to be confident that they are paying for one ton of CO2 removed or abated from the atmosphere and that they're getting that one ton. And then that one ton is stably out of the atmosphere and, and sequestered, right? And so for us, the, the way to do that is to develop really scientifically sound methods of quantifying carbon. So Indigo created a technological approach to make this carbon market scalable. Such an approach would not have been feasible even five years ago. Indigo's carbon quantification combines physical soil samples with highly technical peer-reviewed models that calculate the changes in emissions and soil carbon. They rely on satellite imagery and farm equipment. And a key benefit is that this kind of modeling can also reduce the amount of data that has to be gathered directly from farmers. Farmers can now spend their time focused on actually implementing the practice changes that are earning them carbon credits rather than time participating in programs and filling out paperwork. And after Indigo quantifies the carbon sequestered and abated, a registry certified group verifies Indigo's claims and then Indigo can sell the carbon credit to a buyer. We've seen farmers who have been implementing cover cropping and no-till, for example, who have neighbors across the street who during a serious flood have had fields completely flooded out. And they've taken pictures of their fields, which look totally dry, directly next to a field that has a few inches of water covering the whole field. The numbers here are huge. You know, there are four and a half 
billion or so acres of cropland around the world. So the opportunity here is incredibly large. There are very few other solutions that have the potential to be at that kind of scale of, of pulling hundreds of gigatons of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere over the next 50 years. What blows me away the most about this is I love how it's using really ancient practices for farming with, you know, completely new technology capabilities in order to measure the impact. Yeah, it's a company that's really of urgency right now because there aren't that many wide-scale solutions for carbon sequestration. It's also a good example of a company whose sustainability strategy can't be decoupled from the business strategy, right? I mean, those two are intertwined. Exactly. It's part of the DNA. And both of these companies really show how much of an impact is possible when sustainability is center to the business strategy rather than a small add-on. So to learn more about the trends in today's episode, check out the Shaping the Sustainable Organization report at Accenture.com slash Built for Change. Thanks to Accenture's Peter Lacey. And to Eric Osmondson and Dan Harburg for talking with us. Built for Change is a podcast from Accenture. More episodes are coming soon. Follow, subscribe, and if you like what you hear, leave us a review.